Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Hi, this is Dr. Joshua Goldman uh, from the UCLA Division of Sports Medicine within the Departments of Orthopedic Surgery and Family Medicine. I'm very excited to speak with you today about uh, primary care fracture management. I have no conflicts of interest. Uh, and as an overview today, we're going to start with fracture epidemiology, uh, which is really the foundation of understanding the types of fractures that we'll see in the primary care setting. Then we'll get into fracture basics. This is going to take you back to the things that we learned in medical school in terms of bone anatomy and physiology. And lastly, we'll uh, finish up with some case presentations on common fractures that you're going to see in the primary care setting and our management strategies for those. So beginning first with fracture epidemiology, uh, it's important to note that 70% of primary care physicians treat fractures, which as a family medicine trained physician, I'm very excited to see. Uh, additionally, 70% uh, of fractures are treated non-operatively, meaning these are things that we in the primary care setting really can take care of. Uh, fractures make up about 1.6% of all physician visits, and the most common adverse event is actually a missed diagnosis. In terms of fracture epidemiology, we see a very predictable bimodal distribution in terms of uh, when we are seeing fractures, both by age and by gender. Uh, so in, in the younger population, we see a spike uh, males outpacing females, i.e. an age in which males are probably not making great decisions. And then as we age, those rates um, dip overall and become equal by gender in the 40s and 50s. And then as we continue to age into our 60s, 70s and on into our 80s, we see a secondary spike in fractures. Now females outpacing males, the uh, majority of these are related to falls. Specifically looking at the pediatric population, that initial spike we saw in the last graph, um, we see uh, very distinct fracture patterns that vary by age. So as we increase in age in general, starting at one up to age 18, we see a steady rise in fractures. Again, these correlate with uh, youngsters becoming more active, more mobile, beginning to play recreational sports and partake in other recreational activities. Um, and at all age points, we see that uh, males uh, outpace females in terms of number of fractures. In terms of the locations of these fractures in the pediatric population, these are predominantly isolated to the forearm and upper arm in the humerus, as well as the tibia and fibula in the ankle. So next, let's jump into some fracture basics. So starting first with bone microanatomy, there are three key layers of the bone that I want to review today. The first is the periosteum. That periosteum is the skin-like layer overlying all of our bones. And this is really important in that it provides a lot of the sensory innervation to the bone as well as the vascular supply. Uh, second is the cortical bone. This is the dense, hard bone that is responsible for making our, our bones durable and able to tolerate the weights and loads that we place on them. And then third is that central trabecular uh, bone. And this bone is really essential for making uh, the bones light uh, and shock absorbing. 
So then looking at the bone more uh, grossly, the gross anatomy of the bone, just starting with the, our terms for various aspects of the bone. So starting at one end, we have the epiphysis of the bone. Uh, and then the central shaft is called the diaphysis. The transitional space between the epiphysis and the diaphysis is called the metaphysis. Additionally, we have some extra terms for bony anatomy. So on the ends of our long bones, we have articular cartilage that uh, allow joints to, to flex and bend smoothly. Uh, then we reach that cortical bone, and then again, centrally, that trabecular or cancellous bone. And then in the central part, in that diaphysis of the long bones, we have the medullary or marrow cavity where our bone marrow exists. Next, again, specific to the pediatric population, we have unique growth centers. So these are uh, termed physes and apophyses. A physis is a cartilaginous disc that separates the epiphysis from the metaphysis and is responsible for longitudinal growth of long bones. Every physis has a very predictable closing time or closing age uh, window where we expect that growth to cease in any particular long bone. And then within the apophyses, these are secondary ossification centers at the site of a tendon's bony attachment. And you know, with repetitive loading, we can see inflammation in these apophyses, the most classic of which is Osgood slaughter at the tibial tubercle. So how do we, as physicians treating fractures versus apophyses, know if an apophysis or a physis is still open? And there are a number of ways to do this, the most challenging of which is to memorize the age at which any apophysis appears and then subsequently closes within the body. I discourage this technique of there as there are way too many of these with way too many dates to try and memorize. Um, much simpler approach is again, looking at radiographs. So simple radiograph, you'll see a classic appearance of that apophysis, but then again, we can be fooled. How do we know the difference between an apophysis and an avulsion fracture? Because uh, these can appear very similar for we are sort of at that cusp of closure. Um, and here on this, this slide, you can see the tibial tubercle apophysis and the anterior knee, the calcaneal apophysis. Uh, and the posterior aspect of the heel, and then the medial epicondylar apophysis uh, on the inside of the elbow. So to differentiate between an avulsion fracture, apophyseal injury versus a normal healthy apophysis, the nice thing about sports medicine is we have two of almost everything we take care of. And so you just compare to the contralateral side. So on this slide here, you can really nicely see the widening of the medial uh, epicondylar apophysis on the image on the left compared to a normal width on the right. That widening can be related to an avulsion type injury or a chronic overuse injury, in this case, little leaguer's elbow. Uh, next, you know, knowing your anatomy is really helpful between differentiating fractures and apophyses. And so uh, in this radiograph here, you can see a fracture and an apophysis sitting adjacent to each other at the base of the fifth uh, metatarsal. The uh, longitudinal uh, lucency that you see, the one that runs parallel to the shaft of the fifth metatarsal is the uh, apophysis. And inflammation here we term Islin's disease versus the perpendicular lucency to the shaft, uh, which is actually an avulsion fracture at the base of the fifth metatarsal. So again, knowing that anatomy, knowing the, the normal anatomy of these apophyses is gonna be important in differentiating them from fractures. Uh, next, we describe fractures with a number of specific terms, and I like to use the acronym BLT-LARD, not the most appetizing sandwich you could order, um, but it really helps us remember the ways that we want to describe fractures, very similar to the terms that we use to describe um, dermatologic uh, pathology that we, that we see in our notes. So when describing a fracture, first you want to identify the bone. Second, you want to identify the location on the bone. Third, you want to identify the type of fracture, and in a minute we'll go over the various subtypes of fractures. 
Uh, fourth, you want to talk about length and specifically describing any shortening that may have taken place relative to the fracture. Uh, fifth, we want to talk about angulation. And when I describe angulation, I try to do it in a way where I use the same terminology every time. And so when I describe angulation, I describe the plane in which I'm looking. So sagittal, coronal, axial, which way the apex points. And this prevents us from confusing ourselves. Do you know, is it is it apex dorsal? Is it apex volar? So I describe the way that the, the point, the tip of the spear in the fracture is pointing. So it'll, let's say this is a distal radius fracture. I'll describe that it has 10 degrees apex dorsal angulation on sagittal view. And so now, without even seeing that radiograph, you have a very clear picture of what's taking place. Uh, sixth, we want to describe rotation. So any rotational instability. This is most common in spiral fractures. Uh, and then lastly, we want to talk about displacement. So uh, either millimeter displacement, percentage of that long bone displacement. Um, both are acceptable ways to describe this. So diving into our fracture patterns, um, we have a number of different terms to describe the way that a bone can break. And so starting on the left side of the screen here, we have a transverse fracture going straight across the long bone. We have an oblique fracture, which breaks through the bone at a diagonal. Uh, we have a butterfly fragment, which is this comminuted uh, central fragment uh, with sort of two oblique fractures stemming off of it. We have a spiral fracture, which can look very similar to an oblique fracture, but you'll see sort of this infinity sign or figure of eight type appearance to it. We have comminuted fractures, which is a, a multi, uh, multiple bone fragments concurrently. And then we have a segmental fracture. So two uh, transverse fractures in this case, uh, and a long bone with a central free uh, segment. Additionally, we describe fractures as open versus closed. Open is anytime the skin has been broken, and this makes it a much more complicated fracture that uh, typically will require a washout in the operating room. Uh, and then we also can use terms that describe the deforming etiology. So impaction fractures, avulsion fractures, which is a tendon pulling it off of a bone or a ligament rather, uh, compression fractures, we typically seen in the spine, pathologic fractures occurring through uh, bony tumors, and then stress fractures, which are seen uh, with repetitive impact or load on a bone. Next, we have pediatric-specific terminology, uh, the, the most important of which is the Salter-Harris classification system. Um, so starting on the left side of the screen, we have a normal uh, physis. A Salter-Harris type 1 fracture is a transficeal fracture. So this is a, a fracture that causes a sort of a shifting of the tectonic plates in the uh, physis, but no visual uh, disruption of the cortices on radiograph. There's a type 2, Salter-Harris type 2 fracture, which uh, extends through the physis and then into the metaphysis, which should be differentiated from a type 3, which extends through the physis into the articular surface. The way I remind myself of the difference between a two and a three is that a metaphyseal fracture is much less scary than an articular surface fracture. Again, the articular surface is so critical for uh, joint function. And so a type three is more severe than a type two. A type four fracture is transficeal. So this is extending from the metaphysis down into the articular surface. And then a type five is a crush injury. So a complete erasure of that uh, physis. Um, it's important to note that between 18 and 30% of pediatric fractures involve the physis. So anywhere up to a third of our fractures we're going to see are going to be the Salter-Harris subtype. 
Three additional pediatric fractures I want you to be aware of are first the torus fracture, um, and, and all three of these are unique to the, the pediatric growing bone population. So torus fractures involves a single cortex and involves a buckling of that single cortex. We see these commonly in the distal radius, uh, as well as the tibia and the femur. Next is a green stick fracture, and it gets its name from the, the green sticks of uh, branches of trees that sort of splay rather than break cleanly. And so we can see again, a single cortex splaying open of, of a distal radius here in the, in the middle image with that dorsal cortex remaining intact, acting as a hinge. Green stick fractures look relatively benign, but are notoriously uh, nasty with regard to secondary displacement. So I follow these really closely. And then third is a Boeing type fracture. So this you have to envision a series of micro fractures stemming the length of the diaphysis um, that causes the subtle bowing of a bone. So next I just wanna talk about fracture healing phases. And this helps us start to think about anticipated healing timelines when we're taking care of patients. Uh, so the first phase is the inflammatory phase. This is taking place from day zero up to about 14 and involves uh, lots of uh, migration of inflammatory cells into and around the fracture site. Second is the repair phase. So in this repair phase, starting at about 10, maybe up to 14 days, we start to see ossification around the fracture as well as chondrogenesis. So this is why at 14 days, we start to see a lot more fracture stability. And then moving into the remodeling phase. So finally starting somewhere around uh, two to four weeks all the way out, you know, extending can be months to even years, continual remodeling of that bone. Next, uh, I want to talk, jump into fracture management, which is, uh, I think, the most important takeaways for the group today. Uh, and I'm going to leave you with a series of tips uh, that I've developed over the years uh, in terms of key things to think about as we're taking care of fractures. So tip number one first is identify the bad stuff. Um, and I think we think about a lot of what we do on the front lines in primary care as, you know, trying not to miss really important and dangerous things. And so I just want to review those life-threatening complications or fractures. So typically we see this with major trauma open fractures. These are not fractures walking into a primary care setting, but occasionally we're fooled. So uh, first and foremost is hemorrhage. And this can occur with about half of pelvic fractures uh, that, that are hemorrhaged to a point that require transfusion. Um, second is fat emboli. So we see this specifically with long bone and pelvis fractures, and this is typically going to occur 24 to 72 hours post-injury. Uh, third and in a similar vein is pulmonary embolism. Fourth is gas gangrene. This is typically, again, with penetrating injuries into the muscle. Hopefully these are not walking into a primary care setting. Uh, fifth is tetanus. Again, we see this with open fractures. And then lastly is compartment syndrome. And this is the one that I really want you to be aware of and, and, and be on the lookout for. Commonly seen with tibial fractures, especially proximal tibial fractures, as well as forearm fractures. All of that bleeding and hemorrhage and hematoma in the compartments of the forearm and lower leg um, can predispose to uh, a rapid compartment syndrome, which can be uh, devastating. So again, checking pulses, checking peripheral uh, neurovascular sensation and making sure uh, patients are aware to continue to check that in the acute period following a fracture. Tip number two, know when to refer. Uh, and when I'm teaching our sports medicine fellows at UCLA, the first and most important thing I teach them is never, never feel like you need to keep and take care of a fracture that you just don't feel comfortable with. So, you know, we all have varying levels of comfort when it comes to um, 
taking care of patients. And when you look at a fracture and it just makes you feel nervous, go ahead and refer that out to an orthopedist. Second is open fractures. So anything open needs to be washed out in the OR and that is not something we should do in the primary care setting. Uh, number three, neurovascular compromise. Number four, comminuted fractures. These tend to be very complicated and unstable uh, and often need some kind of fixation. Uh, third is complex intraarticular fractures. So in terms of joint function, that articular surface is king. And so any complex intraarticular fracture will often need some kind of fixation and we should refer those out. And then fractures that cannot adequately be reduced. Often what happens is some sort of soft tissue, either periosteum, muscle, uh, is inter uh, interposed between the bones and that's preventing that reduction. And these will often need to go to the OR for uh, open reduction. Tip number three is to obtain orthogonal plane images. Uh, and so the images here I show you, you know, looking starting at the top left, we see a, a square and a, a rectangle and a circle. If I look down below from a side view, I see two rectangles. And then when we see this 3D isometric projection, I could realize this is a cylinder on top of a rectangular structure. And so uh, this nest radiograph here really uh, highlights the importance of orthogonal planes. So the, the finger radiograph on the left side of the screen looks like a a normal healthy finger. Uh, and then as we see with the uh, lateral projection on the right, that this is actually a PIP and a DIP dislocation. So again, highlighting the importance of orthogonal views to really understand as much as we can the three dimensions of those fractures. Number four, again, always assess that neurovascular function. Um, when it comes to the upper extremity, uh, three simple maneuvers are great for adults and kids. You make a fist, you've shown that the median nerve is intact. You give me a thumbs up, you've told me your radial nerve is intact, and then you spread your fingers into that star type pattern, and now I know the ulnar nerve is working. So three really simple maneuvers even works for kids. Uh, you've assessed the neurovascular function of that upper extremity. Tip number five, for those of you who take care of uh, you know, the pediatric population in your practices, remember that children are magical. They have an incredible ability to uh, remodel. Uh, so the images, the radiographs that you're seeing here on the uh, right side of the screen show um, uh, a specific type of distal radius fracture that has uh, positioned itself in what's called a bayonet alignment. Um, and over a number of months, we see complete remodeling of that, that bayonet fracture into a, an almost normal appearing distal radius. Um, and so, you know, again, remember that the, the body, especially in young children, has an incredible ability to heal many of these fractures. That being said, you know, there is a limit to everything. And so this slide is just as a reference for you um, in terms of the remodeling potential. So for every bone, uh, there's a very specific degree of angulation and rotation that the body can tolerate and correct. And this varies by location. So for example, the humerus is exceptionally forgiving, especially the proximal humerus. They can tolerate 70 degrees of angulation uh, down to the forearm, which you know, can tolerate a little bit less, 10 to 15 degrees, depending on your age. Tip number six is to follow physeal injuries. Um, and, and this is, again, specific to that pediatric population uh, because we know that um, growth arrest is going to occur in 5 to 10% of patients with a physeal fracture. Um, we know that outcomes of premature growth arrest are going to be based on skeletal age, location, and the extent of an associated physeal bar, that, that bridging closure of the physis. Um, 
central fasciae bars in general are going to prevent uh, longitudinal growth and create a subsequent limb length discrepancy, which you need to calculate based on uh, remaining anticipated growth. And those peripheral fasciae bars are going to, in addition to causing a limb length discrepancy, also are going to cause an angular deformity. So um, these are really complicated. There are not a lot of great solutions for these, but we want to continue to follow the physis um, out to typically a year post-fracture of anything Salter Harris II or above. So here are a couple of those images again. Um, the one on the left side of the screen is showing you a physeal bar from a distal tibial fracture. And then the image on the right is showing a physeal bar in a distal radius fracture. Uh, again, just a reminder, want to continue to radiograph, get radiographs typically every three months out to a year post-injury. All right, so now let's dive into some cases. Um, so case number one is a 27-year-old male softball player who presents with left wrist pain for about a week. That pain began after sliding headfirst into second base where he hit his hand forcibly and collided with the base. Um, so taking a look at this radiograph, you know, were we in real life, I'd ask you, what's our diagnosis? But since, uh, since we're doing this virtually, I'll jump ahead and give it to you. So um, this is a uh, scaphoid waist fracture, uh, a little bit about carpal fractures. They make up about 6% of all fractures that we see. Overall, they are underdiagnosed, and this is really due to the complex and overlapping anatomy on radiographs. Yeah, going back to that picture, you know, that, that carpal row, all those bones are really overlying themselves, and, and it makes it hard to diagnose these fractures, especially if you're not used to looking for them. Scaphoid fractures specifically are going to make up 60% of all carpal fractures. Um, and the scaphoid, in terms of fractures that we take care of, is a relatively nasty bone, and this stems from its vascular supply. Um, it has a relatively complex vascular supply with two main arteries supplying it. The major blood supply comes from that dorsal carpal branch of the radial artery, and it's going to supply 80% of the scaphoid via retrograde uh, blood flow. And then the minor blood supply is coming from the superficial palmar arch, another branch of the radial artery, and is going to supply blood to the distal 20% of that scaphoid. And so healing, uh, given this retrograde vascular supply, is going to vary uh, depending on what aspect of the bone is fractured. And so the more distal you are, again, towards the, the good, healthy uh, blood supply, the more likely you are to have healing. So the image here is showing healing rates based on um, location of the fractures. So those distal scaphoid fractures are going to do really well, really nice high healing rates. When we get down into the waist, it can vary from 60 to 80%, and then the more proximal you come, really that, that healing rate becomes quite low. Uh, next with scaphoid fractures, uh, again, I want to talk about the mechanism. So this is a longitudinally directed axial blow or that common foosh fall on an uh, outstretched hand, uh, transmitting that force to the scaphoid. On exam, they'll have a slight re uh, reduction with wrist range of motion, typically due to pain. They'll have a minimal amount of swelling. Um, pain with axial scaphoid compression, so you can grab the thumb and just axially load down on the scaphoid. And then point tenderness to palpation over the scaphoid, if you remember that term, the anatomic snuff box between those uh, APL and EPB in the thumb, uh, that you're going to have point tenderness there, as well as the volar scaphoid, which is sort of at the base of the thenar eminence. Um, and then on uh, imaging, we want to make sure we're getting four views, the most important of which is what's called the scaphoid view. Um, so scaphoid imaging here, uh, this, the radiograph uh, showing a scaphoid view, so the, the wrist is ulnarly deviated, and you get a nice clear shot right through the waist of the scaphoid there. 
Um, MRI and CT are extremely helpful when it comes to scaphoid fractures as radiographs are often normal. So if you have high clinical suspicion, you're going to want to head, go ahead and get a, an MRI or a CT. Um, the majority of these fractures are waist fractures, making up about 80%. The proximal pole makes up 15%. The distal tuberosity and articular surface are 4 and 1% respectively. And then in terms of when to refer, any displaced or angulated fracture needs to be referred. Um, anyone who has signs of non-unions, this is classified by sclerosis uh, or, or a cortical appearing line uh, through the fracture site. Um, if you have AVN based on radiographs, it's suspected, or a patient who prefers surgery given the, the predictable um, outcomes. I'd also like to add any of those more proximal fractures should likely be referred. So in terms of management, if it's a distal third, non-displaced, you want to put the patient in a short arm thumb spica cast, IP free, referring to the interphalangeal joint um, for six weeks. You want to elevate the hand as much as possible in the first week or two to minimize swelling, and then follow these every two to three weeks. In general, for those distal thirds, um, the length of immobilization is six weeks, can be up to eight or 10, depending on the age of the patient. And total healing time in general is six to eight weeks. So again, those distal thirds, non-displaced, are going to heal really nicely. For the middle and proximal third non-displaced fractures, these are going to be placed in a long arm thumb spica cast for at least four to six weeks. Um, again, the, the long arm is going to prevent rotation at the wrist, uh, again, minimizing movement at the fracture site, and then transition them to the short arm thumb spica, typically at that four-week mark until we see radiographic healing. You're going to want to follow these every two to three weeks. And in general, the length of immobilization is anywhere from 10 to 20 weeks, uh, which is why patients will often elect for operative fixation. Total healing time ranges from 12 out to 24 weeks. Um, and they're very often going to require occupational therapy post-casting to regain motion, given how long they've been immobilized. So again, big difference between those distal third and, and middle and proximal thirds in terms of healing time and outcomes. All right, our next case, case number two, is an eight-year-old man presenting for follow, follow presenting following a Fouche injury at school. Uh, looking at our radiographs here, the diagnosis is a distal radius torus fracture. Torus fractures are incredibly common uh, in the young population. This is a simple buckle uh, of the cortex caused by an axial force applied to an immature long bone. Uh, the metaphysis is vulnerable in children because of the thin cortex. Um, and typically, well, this is a Fouche-type mechanism when we see these in the distal radius. Um, uh, AP and lateral views of the wrist are sufficient, um, although I will note that the, these torus fractures can be very subtle and are usually best seen on lateral views, um, and they're typically non-displaced. They can be treated softly with a short arm cast or a movable volar splint. The benefit of the splint is you have a faster return to function than casting. Although I, I would warn you to know your patient. If this is an eight-year-old boy, they cannot be trusted. And so I tend to, to keep those individuals in casts. Um, you can use Tylenol for pain control. NSAIDs are sort of uh, questioned in terms of whether or not there's any effect on fracture healing. So we tend to stick with uh, non-anti-inflammatory pain control. And immobilization is limited to about four weeks. So these are going to heal really nicely within a month. Um, you want to get repeat radiographs to confirm healing prior to clearing the patient for return to play. Um, but typically within four to six weeks, they're back to normal activities. Case number three is a five-year-old female soccer player who presents with shoulder pain following a fall on the lateral shoulder during a game. 
Uh, and based on this radiograph, her diagnosis is a uh, mid-shaft clavicular fracture. In her case, it is displaced and slightly shortened. Um, mid-shaft clavicular fractures are also incredibly common. Most common uh, type of clavicle fracture is that middle third, typically from falling onto the shoulder, uh, typically laterally or anteriorly. They can also have a direct blow to the clavicle or an impulsive force transmitted from the, the hand and wrist up through the arm following a foosh injury. Presentation is uh, with pain with shoulder movement, arms typically held to the chest to support that lateral uh, aspect of the clavicle. And a prominence is often visible at that fracture site with a palpable step-off. On exam, they'll have tenderness, crepitus, echimoses, and possibly skin tenting. Um, and their complications include pneumothorax, hemothorax, uh, as well as vascular compromise given the close approximation to the subclavian vessels. Uh, treatment for these initially involves an arm sling for comfort. Um, typically, we'll follow them up two weeks post-injury just to assess pain and make sure that uh, we're seeing some early signs of healing. Again, thinking back to that healing timeline with uh, chondrogenesis uh, taking place in those first two weeks. Um, and then I'll follow these every two to four weeks. Um, in terms of imaging, typically I'm re-imaging them at, at four weeks and then at eight weeks to, to see complete resolution, complete callus formation. Uh, range of motion is, is tolerated as pain permits. And again, we don't want, we don't want the shoulder or elbow to become stiff. Um, and they should not participate in any contact activities for two months post-injury. Um, you do want to advise, especially older teens and, and adults that, uh, bony deformity may persist. Although in the younger population, remodeling is, is quite impressive. Um, and then uh, you always want to be thinking about what needs to be referred. So any open fracture, again, needs to be referred, any signs of neurovascular compromise, as well as skin tenting. And the, the image here on the right side of the screen is showing a, a nice picture of some ecchymoses as well as some skin tenting that's concerning. Uh, Non-emergent referral is indicated for fractures with 100% uh, displacement or 15 to 20 millimeters of shortening. These are our, our cutoff criteria for non-operative non management, so more than 100% displacement or 2 centimeters of shortening typically needs fixation. Uh, any malunion or non-union, as well as um, those with a concomitant glenoid neck fracture, this is called a floating shoulder if you have a clavicular shaft and glenoid neck fracture concurrently, so that, that would need fixation. But again, reminding you that the mid-shaft clavicle has excellent healing potential. You know, in the young population, the, the teaching is that if the two ends of the bones are in the same room and under the skin, leave them alone. Um, again, as we age, healing potential declines, but that mid-shaft clavicle does uh, have a remarkable healing potential. Uh, case number four is a 25-year-old female who presents with acute onset lateral ankle pain following an inversion injury while playing volleyball. Uh, she is unable to bear weight on her ankle uh, and is tender palpation over the um, posterior aspect of the distal fibula, uh, as well as the inferior aspect. And based on these radiographs, her diagnosis is a distal fibular avulsion fracture. Quickly want to review our Ottawa ankle rules. These are our rules to help us decide uh, in which patients uh, radiographs are indicated. And so uh, these really clearly are uh, one bony tenderness at the lateral aspect or the posterior aspect of the distal six centimeters, the lateral malleolus, uh, bony tenderness at the base of the fifth metatarsal, bony tenderness at the uh, posterior edge of the medial malleolus, 
and uh, bony tenderness over the navicular, as well as inability to bear weight both immediately after the injury for four steps, as well as in the office. Uh, next, I just want to go over some classifications of distal fibula fractures. There are a large number of classification systems when it comes to ankle fractures. This Danis Weber system is the most uh, simple and straightforward. A Weber A distal fibula fracture is a fracture that is below the mortise. So the mortise, again, being that articular surface between the distal tibia and the talus. Um, these tend to be avulsion type fractures and heal very well. A Weber B fracture is a fracture at the level of the mortise, and these can have variable amounts of stability and would warrant what are called gravity stress views or stress views of the ankle. Uh, and a Weber C is a high fibula fracture, and these are often associated with other ankle fractures and, and should have you uh, go looking for other ankle comorbidities. So with regard to non-displaced lateral malleolar fractures, uh, especially those uh, below the mortise, they have relatively low risk of complications. Uh, these small avulsion fractures can be treated in a boot for comfort, um, uh, typically four weeks. Uh, the Weber A, so this includes the avulsions, but a slightly higher morphology. Um, I'll either put them in a walking boot or a short leg walking cast, again, depending on the age and trustworthiness of the patient. Uh, for four to six weeks. You can discontinue the immobilization when they are non-tender over the distal fibula with good radiographic signs of healing. Um, and after four weeks, uh, you typically reevaluate them every two weeks until signs of complete healing. Uh, but again, four to six weeks is typically total healing time for these uh, relatively reliable fractures. Okay, case number five is a 29-year-old male who presents with pain over the fifth metacarpophalangeal joint after uh, he, he was hitting a punching bag without gloves. Never a good idea. Uh, based on these radiographs, his diagnosis is a fifth metacarpal neck fracture, which is angulated. Uh, the common term for these is a boxer's fracture. So metacarpal neck fractures are typically caused via an axial load, punching an object or, or falling on a clenched fist. Um, the fifth metacarpal neck fracture is most common of the digits um, based on sort of that exposed lateral positioning. Uh, the inner osseous muscles will contract post-fracture and what are causing that apex dorsal angulation. Uh, so that typical depression of the knuckle. On exam, they'll have swelling and bony tenderness over the distal aspect of the metacarpal. Um, that metacarpal phalangeal joint is typically depressed. So on the image on the right side of the screen, the arrow is highlighting the loss of that fifth knuckle relative to the second, third, and fourth that are quite visible. Uh, you wanna rule out pseudoclawing, which is an extended MCP and a flexed PIP, and then also evaluate for concurrent lacerations. Remember a concurrent laceration would make this an open fracture, which would require uh, washout in the OR. And then on imaging, typically three views are needed, uh, the AP, the lateral, and the oblique, and you wanna measure that angulation as best as possible on the lateral view. Um, in terms of when to refer with the metacarpal neck fractures, any fracture that's unable to be reduced and maintain its reduction, any malrotation of the digit, so the image here on this slide is showing a malrotation, that fifth, uh, fifth digit with crossover while making a fist, uh, any malunion as well as pseudoclawing. With regards to management, for stable, non-displaced fractures, you can place the patient in a, either an ulnar or radial gutter cast for approximately four weeks. You want to include both the proximal and middle phalanges. Uh, 
Um, and you want to make sure you're keeping that MCP flexed to a 90 degree position like is seen here uh, in the image of the, the gutter splint uh, to prevent shortening of the collateral ligaments at the MCP. Uh, typically, you'll follow these within a week just to look for secondary displacement and then every two weeks until healing. Immobilization is typically only till four week mark. Uh, total healing time is somewhere between four to six weeks. With regard to displaced or angulated metacarpal neck fractures, you're going to want to perform a reduction. Um, and there's a very slick technique called the Jasse technique, where the MCP joint is flexed to 90 degrees, one finger is placed over the shaft of the metacarpal, and then you provide an place an axial load on that proximal phalanx, as you can see in the diagram on the right, um, which helps reduce that apex dorsal angulation. Um, Following reduction, you want to place them in an ulnar or radial gutter cast. Remember that MCP needs to be flexed uh, somewhere between 70 and 90 degrees. You'll want to follow them again one week post-reduction to make sure they're, they're holding that reduction and then follow every two weeks there uh, going forward. Length of mobilization, typically three to four weeks. Early range of motion, once you remove the cast, is essential. Again, those MCP joints can become quite stiff. And total healing time with these... Uh, Angulated ones is a little bit longer, typically six to eight weeks. Lastly, I just want to leave you guys with a great reference. Um, I call this the Dictionary of Fracture Management. The IFE and Hatch Fracture Management for Primary Care Physicians is a, a staple with regard to fracture care. Great to have in your office um, as these things can come in uh, at any time and uh, really outlines uh, primary care management referral recommendations for all the fractures we'll see in the outpatient setting. So to review, again, our fracture basics, we want to know the age and gender specific fracture patterns. This is going to help us when a patient comes in with a fall to sort of understand the type of fractures we should be looking for in radiographs. Um, we want to be able to appropriately name uh, and describe these fractures so that we can appropriately diagnose and therefore manage. Uh, we want to remain vigilant for fracture emergencies. Remember, neurovascular compromise, open fractures, penetrating wounds are all concerning. And then understand uh, the fracture healing phases and timeline, which is going to help us guide our treatment and our return to activity. So first, that inflammatory phase in the one to two weeks, the repair phase from two to two weeks to about two months, then the remodeling phase, which can take place for months to years after. Uh, and again, that, that visualization of those fracture healing phases. Uh, next, we want to make sure we know those pediatric-specific fracture subtypes, so our Salter-Harris classification, as well as some of the other unique fractures in, in the pediatric population, including Boeing fractures, torus fractures, green stick fractures, and then uh, some transitional fractures that we didn't have time to touch on today. And know when to refer. Again, anything outside of your comfort zone, uh, I would absolutely refer on to the orthopedists. Uh, open fractures, neurovascular compromise, comminuted fractures, any complex intraarticular fracture pattern, and then fractures that cannot be adequately reduced. Uh, lastly, I just want to say thank you to all of you. Um, the, this great photo of the UCLA Bruins taking down a Stanford football player uh, is my reminder that this is truly a team effort um, when it comes to providing care to our patients, especially now in this COVID era. Um, I can't thank you all enough for your work on the front lines um, and for being a part of our, our primary care community. So thank you again for having me speak here. It is always a pleasure um, to speak to the group, uh, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.
We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.